To ship, of course. Time again for the Ship Show, the podcast where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who's with me tonight? Uh, this is Yusuf, uh, Build Scientist on Twitter. And this is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter. How's it going, folks? Pretty good. Good. That's good to hear. Uh, how was, uh, we're actually going to be talking about FlowCon, Sasha, later. Uh, how was, how'd your talk go? I hear it was pretty good. It seems yeah. to be tweetable. I, I had a lot of good tweet bits come out, and uh, that was that's always very pleasing, of course. You, pleasing you also, to my ego. Yeah, you also taught your first class too, right? I did. I taught my first Chef Fundamentals class. How was everybody that? Was, everybody was very kind as to how much they liked it. <laughs> well, on that note, as as I mentioned, we are going to have a couple of very special guests to the ship show. Gene Kim and Jez Humble are going to join us. We're going to talk about uh, FlowCon what FlowCon was all about that was here in San Francisco last week. But first up, as we always do, news and view. So our first story tonight, uh, this has been making the rounds, how to lose $172,000 a second for 45 minutes. It's the uh, Knight Capital story where they lost in the hundreds of millions. It looks like $400 plus million due to a software bug. We'll link uh, a summary post, and this is the one that's sort of been making the rounds out in the Twitter sphere. It's interesting, if you're into this sort of uh, disaster stuff, uh, you should definitely grab the, they link to the SEC's analysis of it, uh, and there's some pretty uh, shocking things in there. Things like they didn't really have any process to remediate poorly deployed code. They uh, generate internal email messages for errors, but because they generate so much, nobody listens to them. The core of this bug was actually caused by some code that had been turned off for uh, almost nine years. So, did you guys see this when it was going around? I heard people talking about it. It's, yeah. it's kind of amazing, isn't it? It kind of reminds me of this paper that I read about this uh, Japanese trader. They had some kind of a similar issue where somebody had uh, supposedly done a trade and then they tried to cancel it, but it went through and there was this whole thing about canceling the trade and um, the software didn't stop it in time. So, the, the broker ended up losing you know, millions and millions of dollars. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is a, always a great, yeah, I don't know. The, the financial industry is always the like best example of when people talk about not having procedures and things like that, where it's like people listen because it's actually real money. And this is actually the quote that I was thinking of was, did not have supervisory procedures to guide its relevant personnel when significant issues developed. And it's interesting because um, in Velocity, there were discussions about, let's not, you know, I trust people and we don't need to have run books and things like that. And it's an interesting kind of anti-pattern that seems to be gaining some traction. John Oswald actually weighed in, too, uh, with a post talking about how the SEC statement is really not a post-mortem. Uh, he, and he describes why. It's definitely worth a read. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Next up, we wanted to note that uh, the GCC Melt has reached 1.0. Melt is apparently a uh, compiler plugin that allows uh, allows you to do various things with GCC that you could do with Clang. And so it allows you to like kind of hook into various things. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, uh, you saw Apple 
moving to Clang because it was easier to develop than GCC. So it's it's almost like it's kind of like reminds me a lot of the browser wars. Just seeing Chrome kind of in in some sort of response to sort of Firefox, and so you see like GCC Melt being, and then of course Firefox responding kind of a back and forth, uh, which is good for users of in the browser space, users and developers. So it's good to see uh, that GCC is is kind of volleying back across the the foray against sort of Clang. Anyway, the Ridge 1.0. We'll link to that in the show notes. You can take a look at it, uh, and I guess it works with GCC 4.7 or 4.8 or later. On that note, actually, uh, there was an interesting study, uh, and we'll link to it in the show notes, about uh, how your compiler can compromise application security. There was a research group at MIT that found out that compilers can actually uh, optimize your applications in certain ways and optimize out code that causes security issues. They did some static analysis. They have a tool for it that runs against C and C++, and they found about 160 new bugs, including... 32 in the Linux kernel, 3 in Mozilla, 5 in Python, and 9 in Postgres. But it's kind of funny. I, I was uh, talking with a friend that reported a, a compiler bug against, I think, Clang this week, and it's, he was saying it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it always creeps you out when you file compiler bugs like this because it's, we all kind of expect the compiler works, but it's just software too. Did you guys see any of these announcements about a melt or, or uh, the application security compromise? Oh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, it's one of those things we, you know, part of the stack that we expect works, but sometimes they can have issues just as much as anything else, and, and it can be it, surprising. It kind of makes me wonder if, not that I'm recommending anybody do this, if somebody were to, you know, insert some sort of malicious stuff in your compiler, how many people would notice? Well, you know, that was always the running joke, and I can't remember who said this. Was it Dennis Richier? Someone was, like, saying, if you're, if you're going to put a Trojan horse in, like, the, and this was back when, you know, on Unix machines, the login process was called login. It still is for most most ways for logging in, actually, on the terminal. But, uh, yeah, he was saying you don't put the Trojan horse in the source code. You actually put it in the compiler yeah. that compiles the, you know, that old story. I'll, I'll see if I can dig it up, but it's, it's a funny thing where he's like, yeah, you actually put the malicious code deeper down the stack. Yeah. Speaking of stacks, uh, we wanted to point people to devstack.org. It's apparently a documented shell script to build complete OpenStack development environments. And uh, I actually kind of wanted to bring this up for a couple reasons. I thought it was interesting that they've got a shell script to build OpenStack. But Yusuf, you and I were arguing on Twitter about massive shell scripts, and it looks like this might be one. <laughs> I'm going to check it out for sure. But yeah, you, yep. you know how I feel about, about massive... Uh, Shell scripts, but yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny though. According to the the steps, they say you clone the GitHub, uh, and then you go into the directory and run dot slash stack dot sh, and then it says it takes a few minutes, but it brings up an OpenStack instance. Hmm. Next up, this was making the rounds, but we thought we'd announce it too, since we didn't do news and views for a couple of weeks. Actually, I have a bunch of news that's maybe may a little old, but still interesting. Joblint was making the rounds in the Twitter sphere a couple weeks ago. It's basically a linting tool for job announcements. It's written in Node. We'll link to it. Did you guys see Joblint? <laughs> yeah, I saw a little bit of that. I was no. actually... Oh, you didn't? What, what, what is that? What? So so basically you can run... You can put job descriptions through Joblint and it will it will allow you to... It'll basically lint a job description. So I actually will link to the specific rules directory, which I, I, I love. It basically, because it's Node, it's, these are all JS files, but the different rule sets are bro culture, bubble, expectations, language, realism, sexism, and tech. So wow. in bro, bro culture, uh, there's an array called bro words, 
like bros, bro, <laughs> bro grammar, crank crush, dude, dude bros, hardcore, skills with a Z. That's pretty funny. Do, do they have a rule for like ninjas and rock stars? <laughs> so you know what? That is in the bubbles, bubble.js, gurus, heroes, ninjas, rock stars, superstars, beers, brewskis, coffee, foosball, kegerator, loggers, nerf guns. <laughs> Yeah, PlayStations. Yeah, let's see what else. Foos, foosball. Yeah, what do they? What do they? What do they have in, in sexism? They've got chicks, dudes, uh, husbands, moms. That's interesting. Mm. Wives. Um, and what's the last one? Realism. Oh, uh, synergy, visionary, blue sky. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty good, uh, and it, uh, I'm surprised though somebody I, I you have to get kind of the node environment up and running to actually do this. I'm I, I I'm surprised somebody hasn't done a Heroku app where you can just kind of slam these job descriptions in uh, as a web service. All right, and last up tonight we have something you've pointed us to the end of coding. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's a blog post from uh, Alex Dorth, and he's t- talking about this mantra about every student in every school should have the opportunity to learn computer science or or should learn to code. And he talks a little bit about that. Uh, Yusuf, uh, you brought this to us. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. I know there's the whole code.org thing, which I think is great, but I guess this, this guy kind of talking about how, you know, not everybody should learn how to code, but we should make tools better and easier to use. And he kind of gave examples about things like the introduction of the calculator and how um, the specifically the scientific calculator helped, uh, you know, a lot of folks out, I guess, back whenever it was introduced. And he's just kind of going on about, you know, just tools and uh, how a lot of tools are sort of written for developers instead of, uh, you know, non-developer types. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of at odds with the stuff that he was saying. I mean, I think I, I think people, everybody should have an opportunity to learn how to code. Um, should everybody learn how to code? Uh, I don't know. That's. Hmm. I would prefer teaching people how to communicate rather than code because we're not doing a really good job of that right now. Yeah. I, I don't think over and, and you know it's interesting. I mean, it was what was it? Mark Andreessen was software is taking over the world, and somehow that automatically jumped to well, every other human endeavor doesn't really matter anymore. I guess because you see this a lot. This whole we just need if we teach kids JavaScript, it'll be fine, and they'll know everything. It's like nah, n- no. It, although I will say this. Uh, I'm not super pessimistic on it or entirely pessimistic on it. There are certain math concepts that I think probably would be easier to teach if you knew a little bit about programming or use programming as a vehicle to actually teach them. I I couldn't tell whether Yusuf thinks that some people just shouldn't code because they, you know, because they just, some people just shouldn't or because not everybody in the world needs to know or, or what. But I think everybody should have the opportunity. I think there are certainly people who have no interest in it and shouldn't be made to learn how. But that I think it's pretty easy and that people will learn. I think the biggest hurdle for a lot of this stuff is that people just need to learn it and that it's a lot easier than people think it is. But uh, I don't think it will ever go away. And I don't think that uh, the whole spectrum of coding will ever go away, including a silly GUIs right down to uh, ones and zeros, because there's always going to be a need for someone to do something from all of these. That's very true. I, I, Yusuf, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I took what you said more as this kind of weird emphasis on coding, as if coding will solve Yeah, that's kind of... I, Every I wasn't problem. Saying, yeah, I wasn't saying that there should be people who don't get the opportunity. No, if you, if you have an interest in it, sure, definitely. But the idea that everybody needs to learn how to code to, to do whatever it is that they want to do in life uh, professionally, I, that's that's what I don't know about. 
and I and I think that that's what some people are saying. Yeah, uh, and I I don't I don't agree with that. But no, I mean if you, if you want to learn how to code, yeah, uh, you know definitely people should have the opportunity, and, and I think it's something that's very doable. It, it's not some arcane kind of um, wizardry, although there are. I won't go into detail, but there are programming languages that are, I guess, that are like that. There, there will always be, yeah, there will always be arcane wizardry. And of course, yeah. you know, that's a, that is one thing. It's like, people say there's a shortage of front-end developers, but if we train everyone JavaScript and CSS and HTML and that's all they know, then it's like, well, congratulations, you know, yeah. we've we've created sort of another silo, if you will, um, too. Although, uh, Sasha, now that I think about it, you kind of bring up a good point. I think a lot of these sort of code.org and these organizations that are hey, let's get people to code. A part of it is making sure that everybody who does want to code has the ability to learn that. Because there have been issues sort of with inclusivity and exclusivity in computer science programs and stuff like that. So I, it's interesting. Maybe it all kind of gets wrapped up in, in the same sort of issue. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, next up, Jez Humble, Gene Kim, and Flocon here on The Ship Show. Welcome back to The Chip Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. For this episode, we have a very special treat. We have a couple of people that many of you are familiar with. We have Gene Kim, author of The Phoenix Project, a novel about IT DevOps and helping your business win. And also, Jez Humble, principal at ThoughtWorks. Welcome to The Chip Show, guys. Thank you very much. Hey, it's great, great to be here. here. And I and I also forgot, you wrote a little book about uh, this continuous delivery thing, Jez. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> that. That little book, yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to start with, we just wrapped up FlowCon last week on Friday, and I wanted to start with how you how FlowCon kind of started or how you guys got the idea. You were both on the committee putting FlowCon together and, and how you came to the idea to do FlowCon. Sure. Well, there's a guy called John Esser who's uh, on the program committee too, and he, he is uh, a customer of ThoughtWorks Studios, and he came to us and bugged us uh, about it and said, you should do a conference about continuous delivery. And uh, I go to a lot of conferences, and the last thing I wanted to do was to produce a conference. Just sounds like a really terrible idea to me. Uh, but he, <laughs> he absolutely bugged us uh, into it. And I thought, okay, well, if we're going to do a conference, uh, A, it would be absolutely kick-ass. And uh, secondly, I, I wanted to make sure that it achieved a, a few goals that I've, I've had. One is to do something which is... Um, a boundary-spanning conference. So I go to a lot of conferences, and they're all, you know, here's a dev conference, here's a UX conference, here's an ops conference, and, and lots of very good ones, but there wasn't one which is kind of really boundary-spanning. And, and secondly, I think the best way to express it is I wanted to put a conference together that represented the industry as I want it to look, not as it does look at the moment. And, and that includes the boundary-spanning thing. It also includes, uh, I go to a lot of conferences that are just full of uh, straight white dudes. And so... The first move, really, was to put together a program committee that represented my vision and um, and shared that vision. And Gene, obviously, is, is high on that list because he's a boundary spanner and just also a brilliant guy in general. And fortunately, he said yes. And uh, there was a few other people as well, uh, John Esser, uh, Lane Halley, who is also brilliant and a big deal in the UX community, Elizabeth Hendrickson, who's been doing Agile for, for a long time and 
basically has written a, and spoken about a bunch of stuff which is only now becoming mainstream. Uh, and she's a test. She's known as a tester, but again, uh, a great boundary spanner. Well, yeah, I, I noticed that because the subhead for the conference was continuous design delivery data, and it was interesting to me that you had just people from multiple backgrounds speaking. So there, there was like a transformation and culture track, but then people were talking about QA, and that's actually you know when we talk about continuous delivery, and, and this is one of the things you'll, you'll hear me kind of squawking in the corner about, is like the release engineers and the QA people and how do they get involved in this whole sort of concept of flow. And then Gene, you and I were talking about the compliance people. There was a great talk on, uh, well, there's a processes and techniques track with someone that was, their whole career has been compliance and audit stuff that people have to deal with. Yeah, and I think uh, I have to a huge hat tip to Jez for putting this together. And yeah, I, I just thought it was just a magnificent program community. And yeah, I was actually telling Jez, I, I, when I saw the program schedule get announced, I would, my first reaction was anger. <laughs> it was like, there's so many great talks and you can only, you know, not only can you only go to one of the three tracks. You know, when I saw that, you know, I had to uh, host my track, you know, that preordained, you know, which talks I would go to, I was like, right. I'm going to miss all these talks, which I think is a mark of a, a great program. So uh, just, I can't wait to. This is like one of these things where I'm gonna watch every video. Um, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, and it's funny, yeah. It, it's when you get the. And I'm actually looking at the schedule right now. It's like one of these things where you mark the ones that you're you really want to see live and have that experience. But then you have these like boxes that, that it's like they're fighting between each other because they're, like, <laughs> they're 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 so good. I wanted to talk a little bit about the keynotes because there were amazing. I mean, just all the keynotes were amazing, and there were and I and you kind of did the keynotes at the beginning and then the keynotes at the end. So. Adrian Cockroft from Netflix, of course, started the day off with the, his talk about how they do stuff there. And I and I thought it was really interesting. I mean, he was talking a lot about the scaling issues. He said scale and hardware and then speed and software and how that relates to flow. And uh, he kind of took us all through that journey about, he was talking about the IBM mainframes and, uh, you know, that whole purchasing cycle. I was having kind of flashbacks to parts of, the Phoenix project and you know how you used to do those year-long IT projects that you see in the first part of the book, <laughs> um, and to see that how that that loop that flow loop has just so, so tightened up. You know, I, I loved that talk. I, it was um, it, there was a couple of things that just really resonated with me. I mean, one the sort of he cast everything in these kind of uh, Colonel Boyd's OODA loop, uh, but mm-hmm. something that I found so. You know, uh, that I just found, I got chills just listening to, was not only are the uh, cycle times reducing in terms of, like, it's no longer a five-year project, three-year project, one-year project, it's, like, weeks. But the thing that uh, got me, and not only is it cheaper, but the, the table stakes are lower. The cost of a failure when, you, you know, isn't the company going under or being sold because uh, you squandered $25 million. It's no longer the CIO being fired. It's no longer even the product line being killed. It's the reputation of the product owner or the product manager. And I just thought that was... Uh, Lovely, right? When you when you can build this culture of innovation, and you can actually do these experiments at such low cost, you're not only pushing the work. You're not. You can not only you know, do the work with fewer people and uh, with less capital, but uh, you know the stakes become lower, which makes it safe to experiment. I, that was my big takeaway. I just thought it was magnificent. Yeah, and it makes that cost of A B testing very low, and more or more able to actually do it. I mean that you can actually do those tests, and as you said, not bet the company and have if something goes badly. And I think there's kind of a a nice linkage that he talked about where it's not only is it safe to fail in terms of the experiments that you do, but it's safe to fail in terms of the things you do as as, as a person working in that company and that linkage between the culture that makes it, you know, that failure is going to happen, 
both at the software layer and at the personal level and then at the product level. And that's that's always safe, and we encourage that, you know. And, and that we trust people to to do the right thing and act in the interest of the company. I mean, there, there's kind of so much interesting, and that was a theme of the day I felt between kind of culture and, and product and technology. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's funny you say that because the probably well, it's, I was going to say probably one of my favorite keynotes, which is kind of stupid because I really liked all of them. But one of the ones I really loved, and I, I talked to Jeff Patton, spoke right after, and was talking about what you were just mentioning about we won't be fooled again, and he was he was talking about all of these lessons that he's learned that he was really fooling himself. And it was funny. I talked to him after and I said, you know, I loved your talk. And, and he had things like, let me let me pull up some of the things he was saying because they just resonated with me of, of things that I've told myself and they were just totally wrong. So um, <laughs> I, the first one he went over was I don't need testers or I'm a fabulous UI designer or we need better requirements and that will solve the problem, right? The, it's a requirements problem. And he just went through these lists and I was talking with him after his talk and I said, there are pres- presentations where the presenter is totally trolling the audience and and I told him you troll the audience and you did an amazing job because if somebody had come in and they they didn't read the title of your talk or they didn't hear kind of the setup they would think that you were saying well I don't need testers or I am a fabulous UI designer something all developers thought or if you get better people, you will get it right. All of these sort of myths that a lot of times, too, when we hear in like the, the startup echo chamber, you know, I don't need testers or whatever, you hear that a lot. But just the way that he would then, you know, say, this is what I thought, and very straight-laced, just say it, and then sort of, of walk us through about why in his history of working with all these different organizations, it turned out that he was fooling himself. And I, I just, it, be able to troll your audience like that and do it beautifully and do it convincingly and have that humor throughout the entire talk was just, it was a great talk to watch. Yeah, and I love Jeff Patton. He's just such a super guy because he's that genuine combination of being brilliant and visionary, but also being just incredibly humble and self-deprecating. Right. And that, that came through in the talk. I mean, all these things that he was talking about himself. He's like, here are all the really dumb things that I've done in my career presented just hilariously and, and why you shouldn't do them and what led him. Just brilliant stories. I mean, the, the one that I loved particularly was when he was talking about some software he was developing for traders. And uh, you know, <laughs> they, they thought it would be it would be a good idea to put a trap feature in, 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 in this software for the traders. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and the, the reason they did that is because no one was ever allowed to see the traders. Uh, and it, he basically was like, well, screw this. I'm going to go and see the traders and just went to see the traders and uh, like got the lift down to that floor even though he wasn't supposed to. Right, yeah, said, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to right, do that. And he was like, well, yeah, can I? And, and, and there's also that you can't take photos and then he had a slide <laughs> of like the photo of the, he's like, well, I kind of, like, I have my iPhone, so. <laughs> and, and he went to the traders and they're like, oh, no one ever comes to see us. Thank you for coming to see us. <laughs> he was like, oh, sure, you know, and, and then he looked and the, 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 each of the teams was organized in such a way that they could physically see each other. So the idea right. of having a chat feature was just like the most ludicrous waste of time because... <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it, he too, he said, this was one of the kind of the, the things that he said where he was fooling himself, and, and I, I talk about this a lot, was we'll find a process that really works. And we kind of hear these things, uh, and, and I sort of try not to fall into this trap where it's like, well, if you just have enough process, and we'll find we can fine tune the process, and and I think there's an element of, of any of that, and especially when you're trying to do flow in an organization, you need to have some kind of framework for it. But it's not 
you know, his point was it's not all about process and it's not something that you can entirely take from a book. you got to actually apply it. There's an application step that is really important. You know, I, I loved uh, that talk too. And yeah, just to see the exemplars in each one of these in the domain of UX, dev, test, ops, you know, compliance, you know, it's just, it is so awesome, right, to see kind of the best of the game, be able to sort of show off the stuff, because, you know, even though I'm a, I started the UX practice at Tripwire, you know, I was trained, you know, by the, the Cooper folks, you know, to actually see a disciple of Marty Kagan actually kind of show his craft off was just awesome. Uh, so, you know, what, what a great, I, I think, you know, I, what I'm hoping I'm, I'm, I'm kind of guessing a lot of people were like me, that you know, they, one of the huge values was they were able to see these authorities in fields that were adjacent to them and you know, be able to raise their expectations of what they should be able to expect and ask for from their colleagues. I'm a huge believer in this quote, you're only as smart as the average of the top five people you hang out with. And mm-hmm. you know, I think it's like events like this that you know, are just unique, wonderful opportunities just to, to see how good good can be. Right, well, and that's one of the things I, I really liked about, I mean, the name of the conference, FlowCon, has this connotation when, you know, we talk a lot about kind of in DevOps, breaking down silos and that sort of thing, and and I think a lot of organizations are just starting to go through that process and figure out what that means for them, but when you talk about flow, a couple things come to mind, you know, this concept where they talk about the uh, 10,000 hours of practice that make you good at what you do, and they talk about getting into flow. And this concept of like when an organization gets into flow, you have this water that's kind of flowing through and it's cross-pollinating dev and test and compliance in a way that you wouldn't see, you know, if you think of like a grain, yes, the, the picture everyone always uses of the grain silos. And when you think of more like a, like a river and a flow and this, this idea of being in flow, it has a very, uh, very nice connotation to it. And did you, did you guys think, it, is that what you were going for when you picked the name Flowcon? <laughs> Uh, I, I am terrible uh, with names. Uh, I was once in a band called the Chutney Ferrets, and so picking <laughs> names. Is that's going to be that's going to be trivia at some DevOps thing, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and um, so so it's really hard. And Flowcon, yeah, I mean, there's a concept. I was kind of inspired by Runnison. So Runnison has this book called The Principles of Product Development Flow, um, which is one of my favorite books. Well, IT books anyway, and um, it, it was kind of that, that was what sparked that in my mind. But but yeah, it's, it's definitely it's about the idea that we only we only win if we all win, and and what what Gene talks about in the Phoenix Project, which is systems thinking and what's necessary to support that, which is everyone working together in the wider interests of customers. Um, and by the way, just for the record, right, this flow kind of was Jez's baby. You know, the rest of us on the program committee, we were just setting up his phone calls, setting up his appointments, driving him. From his house to the <laughs> conference. I mean, come on, Gene. Food. <laughs> oh my God. So, yeah, so I would like to refute this uh, immediately <laughs> and point out that actually putting this program together was uh, a lot of work. Uh, we sat on one-hour calls every week for months trying to put this program together, and there is no way that this awesome program could have possibly been put together without all five people on the program committee. It really, the program that you saw is is uh, absolutely the result of everyone working together and, and using their networks uh, very strongly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you you could tell again, and we were talking about this about all the talks is that it, they had from different walks of life, different uh, personal experiences, different technical experiences, different roles in the entire process, and you could really see that. And that's actually I wanted to talk about that 
when we started talking about it here, you brought up diversity, but I that also resonated with me the first talk. You, you brought that up about, uh, and I'm seeing this at a lot of conferences, which I think is really good, but this whole, if there's any any issues, any, you know, creating a safe space and talk, being very upfront at the beginning of the conference that that's important to the conference organizers and what that means, and you had it on the website and you had contact information. So that was great. And I wanted to talk about Ash's talk, Ash Dryden's talk on diversity because that's the first time I'd seen that talk. And that was her, her talk was talking about uh, diversity in programming and some statistics, and there were some fascinating ones. But it was an interesting part of this component of flow. And, you know, we talk a lot in hiring pipelines and things like that about, you know, what are the issues with that? And that's kind of a, a flow issue, too. So, yeah, I, I just thought that was an amazing talk. Yeah. And, and, you know, Ash is one of these people who is a brilliant at what she does and be just very passionate about this other issue. I mean, she, she's a Ruby developer and she's, but she's also very passionate about this issue about diversity in our community. And so she's, what amazes me, because I follow a bunch of people who are passionate about this because obviously I'm passionate about it too. And it, it's just the relentlessness with which these people are attacked within the community. Oh, oh um, yeah, 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 yeah. So I was going to mention that because she, in her presentation, she had a statistic that said that women were only 3% of open source contributors. And I tweeted that, I tweeted that statistic and I said, so, you know, a lot of organizations that say, well, we only use GitHub for, for hiring and we only kind of narrowly look at that. And you hear that, that's like, what well, GitHub is your entire resume and that's the only thing that matters. And I said, you know, that's a very high-level initial like bias or that you're missing out by just looking at that as a source of talent. And I was surprised. I was actually amazed at how much pushback I got, both negative and positive. I got a lot of retweets from that and people thinking about that. But I had some very, very negative tweets. And I can't imagine people that are really talking bluntly about this in a way those conversations need to be had. I, I don't know how they do it because I was just kind of citing a statistic and saying, you know, making kind of a, a fairly boring observation, really. And I was just surprised at the pushback I got on it. And, and wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really interesting statistic. And it points to the fact that, you know, anyone who thinks that the community is the way that it looks because it's a meritocracy right. is just fooling themselves. Right. I mean, it's nonsense. And all, but the problem is, you just have to point that out in, you know, using what, I mean, that statistic is like incontrovertible. There's no way you can deny A, the statistic or the consequences of that statistic, which is, you know, exactly what you said. But even for that, it's like that strikes at the heart of people's self-image of their identity as being part of an elite meritocracy rather than as part of a community, which basically represents the fact that we have a long way to go in the battle for equality. And, and, and there's a whole bunch of people who are very, very defensive about that and, uh, and, and actually just very horrible to people on the Internet about it. And, and that, that, for me, is, is I feel ashamed um, being part of a community where there's so many people who, who are like that and, and not, not just who do nothing, but people who actively push back on this and right. are really offensive. Well, and there, there was that other statistic, I, she, the one that uh, stood out was 56% of women leave the tech community within 10 years, and, and that includes for child rearing. And what I loved about her presentation was it full, was full of statistics like that that you kind of look at and you're like, wow, that sounds really high or whatever. And then to have that sort of reaction, I'm like, oh, nope, I get it. 
I get it. Like it's you know, <laughs> it's it, I can see that. One of the other things I really loved that because because her, her presentation was one of those presentations. Where it's like let me shock you, shock and awe you with all these statistics, and then let's go. Let's do the positive part about what you can do as groups and individuals to help with this. And uh, she had this whole bit on learn to apologize, and I was like, oh, I, I should have just watched the presentation. I had so many years of therapy to figure that <laughs> that little <laughs> part out, you know. So uh, yeah, that yeah. Was, that was that was such a good talk. Well, I just quickly want. To say yeah. you know it was it was a lot of work for us to put together the the program and to be aware of these issues that we were just talking about. And I just want to point people who are interested in educating themselves to the Geek Feminism Wiki, uh, which okay, actually yeah. contributed to Geek Feminism Wiki and Geek Feminism Blog, uh, both fabulous resources to educate yourself on this stuff if you if you're interested. You know, one person tweeted me and said, "Oh, the anti-harassment policy is that because of Donglegate?" And I tweeted back, "I'm like, Donglegate is a drop in an enormous ocean." of terrible things that happen at tech conferences and within the wider community. And, and so I think, you know, we, we could all do with educating ourselves a bit more on, on the reality yeah, yeah. of what it's like. And we'll, we'll link to those in the show notes, definitely. So talking in sort of diversity of presenters, one of the, one of the talks I went to that I thought was really important to have, but also a very interesting perspective was Tim Sullivan's talk, who is the CEO of Ancestry.com. And, and his talk was an executive perspective on transformation and how all of this stuff works. And I think, you know, with the Phoenix Project, we, we sort of get a little bit of a treatment of that topic about how executives are sort of integrating this, this concept of flow and, and continuous delivery and, and how they're dealing with that. But hearing his perspective and his organization's journey I think it was very important because we don't hear it a lot in these conferences. A lot of the, the conferences are very uh, technical focused. And for a lot of us trying to make the business argument, I know I struggle with that sometimes because you know I'm thinking to myself, well, if we change from a recursive make system to a something else, I, it never bubbles up quite in my brain. Like You're, <laughs> you're going to save 20% of programming time across all of your engineers doing a, a rebuild. And so, you know what I mean? I, yeah, and yeah. so I'm curious like about that. I, it, was, it, was, it was great to have that perspective. I got to say, I love the last 15 minutes of his presentation. I mean, just uh, there were two things that I walked away with that just I, I thought were just awesome. So, you know, hats off to John Esser for uh, bringing his CEO in. One of them was, you know, there was a uh, an event that really had a huge, a looming event. It was like when, I guess, the U.S. Uh, released the 1940 census data. Right, right, right. com was in the incumbent position, right? And uh, they had this fear that if they weren't the first to fully analyze it, then they would lose market share to the person who did them to it, so it was right. this huge time to market pressure, and uh, you know he held this up as a triumph for the company that they were the first to be able to release you know capabilities analysis around this. And yeah, he said you know and the ability to innovate leads to a happier company. That in 2006 everyone was frustrated at how difficult it was to get anything done. I mean, oh my gosh, Gary Gruber talked about this you know in his HP LaserJet transformation story, like marketing had given up right. because the backlog was so long. You, know, you sort of just kind of give up, and it's just the same that same pattern. And the la the other thing that just uh, I, you know, it was a huge takeaway for me. I actually was emailing John Nestor to ask Tim Sullivan this question, and then he actually answered it. Was He said, uh, we're spending more money on marketing than on R&D, but we realize that R&D is actually the customer ac acquisition vehicle for the company. And he, and he actually, my question to him was, like, you know, did R&D spending go up over time as a percentage of revenue? And you know, uh, he said, yes, uh, they, it's now crossed. They're now spending more money on R&D right, than on marketing. Yeah. It's like, yeah. if, if there's any evidence that they're 
dev and ops organizations are helping the organization win. It's that, right? It's like winners get more resources. And I just, I thought that was just a wonderful story. Right. And also too, you talk about value creation and that's not to say that marketing and people who do marketing like aren't creating value. But when you talk about value that, that the customer sits down and looks at the website and they do whatever your website is doing, it's like there's a very real measurable connection there. But it's easy to see like what you're saying, you know, if, if there's high friction, and that's a high cost to rolling out features for whatever reason. You have it, you don't have this optimum flow, as it were. It's going to be harder to make that argument that we need more budget to do this sort of same amount of work or whatever because of that friction. I also laughed too at the, I think, I want to say it was the Cobalt Project. And it was so funny because <laughs> all of these, you know, all of these companies have these names, they have their own Phoenix projects. Kind of different, you know. <laughs> it was awesome. It was like, uh, you know, Jez, uh, if you weren't there, it was, it was for those of you who weren't there. It was hilarious. You talk about Project Cobalt, the project that could never happen again. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we we've actually made a couple of mentions of Elizabeth's talk uh, on the care and feeding of feedback cycles. Her background Love is her. yeah, is QA, uh, and I was laughing because she was like, she was saying, you know, she introduced herself a number of times as a recovering consultant, and I was kind of laughing because we are all of us are kind of in that <laughs> sort of space. And it was interesting to hear her her perspective because she'd been a consultant for I think you know over a decade, but this whole uh, how she was approaching feedback cycles and she was talking about it in the context of QA and and she brought up this point that that I thought was very uh, interesting and I've seen a lot I'm sure you have seen this too where there's that they're doing agile and I I'm doing air quotes they're doing agile and there's the stabilization sprint at the end right <laughs> or people play with the definition of done I've seen that I actually worked with an organization that started calling it done done because done didn't mean done but done done meant done and I was like well do you get to a point where when that done done becomes devalued or kind of wishy-washy do you add another done and you're done 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 you know um, dun, dun, dun. exactly exactly but I loved how she was talking about all of that in a kind of a QA context but really it's talking about feedback cycles in general and, and her perspective on it was from a QA perspective but it's really just applicable in, in development it's applicable in the ops side uh, uh, talking about failing fast and, and doing those experiments right those are all about optimizing those feedback cycles yeah and I think you know that the QAs have this uh, position which is both kind of privileged and very unfortunate which is <laughs> that they're, they're used as a political football basically between yep. you know the business and operations and developers they're kind of sandwiched uh, in this kind of miserable, kind of sweaty, kind of limp sandwich, uh, the kind of the, the, the very <laughs> sad, sad piece of lettuce. In it's the, like <laughs> cooking with jazz humble. That going to be that'll be your next book is the the uh, DevOps cookbook where they have recipes for different <laughs> different things. <laughs> we'll actually have real recipes that are just really pleasant to eat. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know, I can't imagine it selling well, but it'd be fun to write. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, the, the, the point of the metaphor is that, you know, testers testers just, I think, have a lot of wisdom because they, they see a, a lot of the dysfunction. They see it all around them uh, from all these different points of view. Uh, and, and, and they often have to deal with the consequences of it, where developers are like, oh, I'm done. And again, right. this is something else that Gary Gruber talks about in his, his talk, is that one of the things they did um, at HP is, you know, if a developer comes to him and says, oh, it's done, he has two questions. Number one is, is it checked into trunk? And if the answer is no, then he's like, okay, I'm, I'm not interested in seeing the feature until it's checked into trunk. And then they come back and they're like, okay, it's checked in. And he says, well, are you going to demonstrate this feature by running the automated tests? 
And if the answer to that is no, then again, he's like, well, go away and bring it back when you're going to demonstrate the feature by playing the uh, automated test that, that, that shows it working. And I think, you know, that, that's brilliant. But organizations where that's not true, you know, the, the entire weight of, of responsibility for, for fixing that or, or making that obvious go, goes on the QA organization. And right. I think, you know, this is something that Elizabeth Hendrickson wrote about in 2001. She has a paper on why having separate QA leads to a downward spiral of poor quality because what happens is you know, the developers think, oh, well, it's, we're not responsible for quality. That's the tester's problem. And then the testers have to, you know, pick up all the bugs and send them back. And then you have the rework thing. But then what happens is, you know, as you get schedule pressure towards the end of a, of a project, the, the, the managers are like, well, don't worry about writing automated tests. We don't have time for that. You know, the, the, the testers will pick up that slack. And you, and you just end up with this downward and then, and then loads of bugs come back and that creates more schedule pressure which means people focus less on testing which means that testers pick up more bugs and you know it, it, well and then it becomes it becomes too with, with the testers this thing about well why didn't you find that because that the, the general quality of the application is going down so it's like there's more pre and I, I've seen that on the release engineering side too is there's more pressure about well what are you guys doing why aren't why aren't you finding these things it's funny you mentioned that because the one I, I once saw an interaction and I'll, I'll I'll remember this forever, where, <laughs> well, well, it was a product manager, and the product manager was trying to get the sprint closed, and the product manager was nicely but firmly badgering the QA person saying, I need, I need the sprint to be closed, and the QA person was saying, well, I didn't, I didn't run all the tests that we, all the integration tests and, and tests that we run to close the sprint, and the program manager was just, I need to close the sprint, that was what was just repeated over, and finally, the QA person was just like, all right, we're done. Like, I'll, <laughs> I'll check the box, but, you know. And so when you're talking about being in the middle and being badgered from both sides, it's like, it's totally true. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard position to be in. You think testers and, you know, release managers have a bad? Hey, try security, right? By the time it <laughs> no, gets to security, I, and then it's like... <laughs> well, in fact, funny you mentioned that because I tweeted that to you, that, that bit about the healthcare.gov. There was a, that line oh, in that God. article where it was like, we, we, it was in the article. They gave you a day for testing, and that worked out great, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And, you know, healthcare.gov is just one of these examples of, okay, we – you know, I would love to think that we make progress as a community, and you know, healthcare.gov is just on the on the one hand, it's it's great because it means we all have jobs for life. On the <laughs> other hand, it's just incredibly depressing because here we are doing this still today, even though we all know it's just really obvious uh, that, right. that it's a terrible way to do things. Yeah, yeah, and we we could actually probably I would love to do it. You know, when we get some more information, a show with you guys on healthcare.gov because a lot of people, I, a couple of thoughts about that. Like a lot of people say. Well, it's, it was a million dollars, and what's the big deal? And it's like, we've all worked with uh, these ancient back-end systems that are, you know, on IBM mainframes, and the interface is literally trying to replicate what phone number presses, is what the, it's, <laughs> right? Stuff like that, right? And so I get it's a, actually a hard project, and a lot of big, you know, people talk about comparing it to Facebook or whatever, and it's like, well, would Facebook has a failure or Netflix has a failure, you don't really see it. They kind of engineer all that stuff in. And so the point is, it's like, I, I've heard a lot of complaint about healthcare.gov and it's like, guys, it's actually a hard problem. It's actually a hard problem. And that doesn't mean they couldn't have done better, but it's a hard problem. Sure, but I think, you know, and I agree with that. Uh, I don't want to say that, oh, that they, these people were just stupid. I don't oh, think yeah, the people yeah. who were doing it were stupid. That's not what I think the problem is, absolutely. You know, it is a hard problem. But then what gives me hope is, um, I look at, for example, the work that the government digital service in the UK has done, where right. they actually, they did all the things that we talked about at Flowcon, where they had cross-functional teams, and they put UX uh, and customer service right at the heart of what they were doing, and they do 
continuous delivery uh, and all these things and, and lean startup. And so in the UK, they've taken the ability to build software in-house and make it a, made it a core competency of government. And you've got all these civil servants who are building these government services in the UK. And, and it's been transformative and it's saved them an enormous amount of money. And suddenly you have government services that actually work and are pleasant to use. So right. I just you know, want to put that out there as an example. You know, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a nationalistic person by nature, but that was one of the few things that I, I've been really proud to, uh, about that the UK has done. Yeah, I, and I think that gets to the why, right? In my mind, I kind of divide up the world into unicorns and horses, right? The unicorns are the Amazons and the Etsy's and the Twitters and the Googles and the you know they're the exemplars. Uh, but yeah, I think the the ninety nine percenters, right? They're the horses. They're the people doing financial services and government and retail who are trying to fight the system. To you know, we all know that we're seeing that there's a better way to do things. So how do we make it so? So I think you know, for for me, what was so magical about Flowcon is that it assembles what prerequisites in order to enact one of these transformations. And I think that is what's so exciting is how do we? It might be you know, how do we prevent the next healthcare.gov, right? right. Uh, and it's they're everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, thinking about this as you, as you guys were talking about, it's like that. You can mix like John Grisham and make it a political. Your next book, Gene, you can do it as a political <laughs> thriller and have it be some some government website or something. Uh, the missiles will all launch if we don't launch healthcare2.gov or whatever. Right. Do to do a four week release cycle. <laughs> exactly. I want to talk about the last couple of keynotes because they too were great. And uh, Catherine Courage from Citrus was talking about design thinking. And I wanted to ask both of you a little bit more about that. I, I found her presentation fascinating, and I have a big note next to the notes about her presentation. Like, I never heard of design thinking before. And all the reading I've done, like, and, and coming to DevOps, like, I never heard about that. So that was a nice introduction to that whole concept. Yeah, and it's something that I think has gained a lot of popularity recently. I kind of It's one of the things that I heard about uh, a couple of years ago from you know, people who I work with at ThoughtWorks. I, I think... It partly has been popularized by IDEO and the work Tim Brown has done at IDEO, but you know it has a much longer history than that, of course, like all great ideas do. But there's, there's a whole lot of literature. It's suddenly becoming very popular, that this idea that actually, and within the Agile movement, I think, in the IT movement, it came out in this idea of UX, of user experience, that actually, you know, traditionally we've thought that Design is about okay making the page look pretty, and both Jeff Pan and Catherine Courage talked about this. But actually, it's about the entire way that every time the user or your customers touch you as an organization, whether it's you know looking at the website, whether it's calls to customer support, whether it's um, you know the actual experience you get using the products, every time the customer interacts with you, that that that's customer experience, and just going back to this idea of focus on the customer and the customer needs and the interaction between form and function, uh, and that's kind of, for me, what design thinking is about, and, and it's just super important, and we don't think about that enough. I mean, it's just bringing, bringing everything back to the customer, which is something that we talk about in DevOps as well. Right. She gave a very great example about how that she has developers and product managers and project managers listen in on support calls. And you talk about feedback loops, right? <laughs> no, I, I, I was like, that is, that's a great idea. Like, because I, it's funny, right? Being able to hear either people that are stressed on the other end of that line and get that data kind of in real time. I think you would make different decisions in those roles if you actually heard people cussing. Because we've all been there on the other end of the line, like, why the hell is it that, you know? Sure. Uh, yeah, we, we all, uh, we were sharing stories, uh, 
about like what it's like to sort of watch someone use your product for the first time, and I was like, <laughs> you know, mentioning how it was a how what a horrible it happened to me in 2006. It was just one of those nauseating. I, I, I felt physically ill just watching, you know, people how much difficulty they were having. And I was uh, sharing stories with someone yesterday, and he said, "Yeah, it's like watching your kid getting beaten up in a karate match." I mean, it was just, <laughs> <laughs> it was just was this lovely feeling, uh, just this lovely description of like just how how insightful it can be to sort of watch someone struggling, right? Um, you know, feeling pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah. And, and I think one of the examples that Catherine gave, which is really nice, was this idea that one company had this idea of trying to minimize the time spent on on support calls as a goal. And she's like, well, you could do that by just burying the link to the uh, telephone number on the website, so no one could find it. Uh, and actually, you know, she talked about how Zappos actually had this goal of increasing the time that was spent on customer service calls because it was a way they could interact with customers and, and find out more about their customer needs. And that was kind of pretty counterintuitive and a, and a great example of how systems thinking leads you to kind of counterintuitive decisions. Well, yeah, and, and, and you know, it's interesting because I believe in her presentation she was, she was talking about and in, in, in about the, the interacting with your customers in the, in the call center, right? It's like those are the customers that have actually stopped to call you, they are taking their time because the, she was saying, you know, there's a percentage of customers that are just going to leave, right? They they won't, you know, they'll, they'll be frustrated and they'll leave. And the customer that is angry enough to call you and give you the feedback, those are like, re that's really the, even if eventually you don't end up keeping the customer for whatever reason, the feedback is super valuable. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, by the way, there's a, a wonderful uh, what does Apple's book uh, Delivering Happiness: The Path of Profits, Passion, and Purpose by um, Tony, Tony Shea. Yeah. Tony Shea. Uh, yeah, I saw his talk once uh, many moons ago. Anyway, so uh, that, that was just uh, wonderful to see that linkage. You know, by the way, there was a quote that she gave that I just thought was incredible. I've, I've sort of seen it before, but boy, this is like one of those themes that just showed up over and over again at Flowcon, uh, the Michael Jordan quote. In my career, I've missed 9,000 shots. I've lost 300 games. 26 times I was trusted to take the winning shot and missed. I mean, <laughs> for me, I was yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I'm not actually a sports fan, but you know, just to sort of see that sincerity of like it's all about trying. It's more important to try, experiment. Yeah, I mean, that showed up in every presentation. It was just marvelous. Right, right, and, and it's funny you mentioned that because I was gonna, I was gonna mention that earlier that it, it seemed and it was good. You, you're starting to see a lot of discussion of failure and this concept of failure as a feature, right, as a good thing. And there was certainly a lot of talks where people were very honest, kind of burying their souls about, you know, this is what we did wrong and this is how it hurt us. And and that is certainly when you talk about feedback loops, being able to be introspective about it and being able to uh, be honest with yourself and have the organization be honest with itself is important, but then you have people going a step even beyond that and being honest with the world um, <laughs> with some of these presentations. And that's that's an amazing shift to see, and it's a positive shift, I think, to see. So I wanted to wrap up with Linda's uh, amazing keynote at the end of the day. She started off with this. I, I wrote this quote down because it was such a great quote. She said, all you've heard today are stories that are really about religion. And Jez, you and I <laughs> talked about this kind of at the end, and she was talking about myths that humans sort of tell themselves about. One of the myths she explored was smart people are rational. Good always triumphs over evil was another one. If I just had enough power, I could make people change. And they, they, they are kind of things that we tell ourselves, but it's one of these things where it's like we have functional MRIs now, and when you put humans in functional MRIs and then you know ask them to do things, it's like, no, science actually says that's not, that's not actually true. It was just a, a great talk. It's it's brilliant. I, I love Linda because she's she's another boundary spanner. She's done 
you know, she's gone from being a very hard, deep computer scientist to now talking about patterns for organizational change. And all her experience comes out in her talks, and she's just got this very dry and wicked sense of humor. So, you know, when the video comes out, I think, you know, that's definitely one to watch. But all of this stuff is about cognitive biases. And I think, you know, that there's the work of Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is another fabulous book which talks about cognitive biases. And, you know, all... I think she she did a really good job of just bringing out the fact that we are, as human beings are just a big mass of cognitive biases and if we ever manage to overcome those that's like a pretty impressive victory in its own right. So one of my favorite ones was the one you mentioned last you know if I just had enough power I could make people change and she had this great distinction between compliance and commitment. Where, you know she's <laughs> like uh, this would come up during the day you know this idea that well you know you know, if only I could get my CIO to, like, enforce this. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to get them to, like, threaten to fire people? And pe- people say this. You know, I've been guilty of saying this before. It's like, well, we should fire those people. And, and you know, she made this brilliant point, which is like, you know, yeah, if you if you threaten to fire people, you know, never mind that. Maybe if you kill people, you know, that's, <laughs> right. that's very effective. Pe- people will do what you say. So, so I, did, you know. <laughs> I didn't tweet that, and it didn't quite – I was like – well, I was worried about it because I, I don't know if it would override because she was talking about she had been, she made a reference to Europe. She was talking about dictators and stuff, and I was like, yeah, you know, kind of paraphrasing like, well, if they don't want to do contingent delivery, we'll just fire them and, and, then, and, kill, kill, and them. then kill them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and here we are all laughing about it, and it was really funny at the time. I mean, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Maybe right, you had to be there. I was going to say that you had to be there moments, and you know, it's funny. You and I, Jez, were talking about this after at the at the end of uh, the day about her talk, and I was like, "Did you put that talk at the end of the day just to fuck with all of us?" And, <laughs> and and we were laughing about that because this whole thing about we we it, it was a whole day of great talks, people talking about this stuff, but she really kind of pointed out like, "I want you to realize that." You are in a space where you're you're seeing a selection of talks, and that and it's all great. I like that she used the word religion, and and she didn't. She said that without judgment. There was no like this is that's bad or good. She was just saying you need to realize the the space in which we're talking about it, and you need to, it's not as easy as just taking one talk again and just taking it to your own org. There needs to be this sort of application process that you go and apply it to the players in your organization. And I just really like that she kind of was right up front saying, you know, you do understand this is sort of a religion, and that's okay, but we need to talk about it in sort of that context. Yeah, and, you know, one of my great lines was, you know, you're going to try and convince people, you're going to go back to your organization, and you're going to come back on day one and say, hey, you know, here's this thing that is is brilliant, and we should all try it, and there's going to be a bunch of people who are, you know, who are going to say, no, you're full of shit, and this is a stupid idea, and I'm not going to do it. And, and at that point, what are you going to do? Are you going to point to the uh, double-blind... Uh, you know, peer-reviewed experiments that uh, demonstrate the validity of this approach. No, you're not, because there aren't any. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yes, that's true. You know, we're not doing science here. It's psychology, um, and uh, with you know, not to denigrate psychology, because psychology they do uh, proper experiments too. So it's, it's even worse than psychology. So that that's very important. And, and I'm reminded of a quote, which is one of my favorite quotes by Jesse Robbins, where he says, "Don't fight stupid." make more awesome and and that for me is kind of the essence of some of the things that Linda was talking about which is that you're never going to convince people by arguing with them or discussing with them because we're not talking about science the only way to convince them is to you know make life more awesome for them you know that this this thing about compliance versus commitment you know it's not about forcing people to do what you want because the moment the pressure is relieved they'll go back to their own way of doing things you want commitment and the way you 
create commitment is by inspiring people. And the way you inspire people is by creating awesome things. Right. One of the other quotes that Linda had that just really stuck with me was this. Uh, she was telling a story and she was talking about, uh, I listened him into agreeing with me. And she was talking about convincing people. Yeah, and, and that's one of those kind of... Uh, it's almost like people hacks. You find out a lot of these people hacks that really turn out to be just don't be an asshole, right? But this, this, <laughs> but but this idea of like you know somebody was opposed to the idea and and she just and she was saying you know I just sat with him for a half hour and we talked about it and the the upshot of the conversation at the end was he was like yeah I guess I could do that and just that kind of empathy around like you can't. You can't go into an organization with a copy of the Phoenix Project and start hitting people on the head with it and expect to be successful, right? There needs to be more there to have that work. And I, I think we've all seen people who are so good at this, right? Not only do they, uh, you get, you see them get agreement, but the reaction is like, and thank you, thank right. you so much, right? So right. you know, they're actually, uh, it's actually prompting gratitude, right? And what the law of reciprocity says is that the more you help someone, the more they will help you. So I think there right. was something, some just deep, wonderful themes that Linda talked about in her talk were just great. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. The, the talks are going to be online. Yeah, that's right. So one of our principles at the conferences, we have four principles, and one of them is access to information and making information freely available. And so, yes, people had to pay for the tickets because we have to make it work financially. But if you go to the Flowcon website, flowcon.org, and click on the schedule, you'll see there's uh, links to download all the slides already. We, One of my personal triumphs was actually getting the funding to make sure that everything was videoed. So everything's been videoed. It's all going to go online. There's a channel uh, on YouTube that all the videos will go up on in a few weeks. Awesome. Uh, and then I also wanted to ask, is there going to be a Flowcon 2, and where is it? <laughs> I, I mean, you have to, I mean, that's kind of a trick question, because you have to say yes, there was such a great <laughs> conference, but uh, do you have any info you could share with us on that? Uh, so I don't have any concrete information right right now, but um, so Flowcon was co-produced by a company called Trifork. Trifork are a Danish consultancy that produces a bunch of really great conferences. All the go-to conferences are, are run by them. And so one of the interesting things is, and, and Yao in Australia, so Dave Thomas, Big Dave Thomas, is is very involved in that. And so he cornered me at the last go-to and said, we must we must have Flowcon in Australia. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it shall anyone, be done. Right. And, and, and anyone who knows Dave Thomas knows that you, you don't mess with Dave Thomas and you do what he says. Um, and uh, you know, he's, he's probably, he's got this very deep booming voice. He's like, uh, so we will do Flowcon in Australia. <laughs> and he's also like, like 12 okay. feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a brilliant guy. I don't want to you know, imply that he's terrifying, although he is. Um, so we, we will, we'll, I don't know. I, I, we would love to do it again, I think. Um, I don't know where it'll be. I, I, I would quite like to do it in South America, maybe. That'd be another option. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, we'll post it on the Flowcon.org website. I'll tweet about it. Um, but yeah, it, it would be great. Certainly, I, I hope that happens because Flowcon was a great conference and I, and it'd be great to have it. Uh, I, I need a vacation to Australia. I, I haven't been, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, Jez, I, I wanted to mention something. So while you were getting Flowcon all organized and doing all that work, you have, you've been working on another project that is going to be released soon. Yes, uh, working on Flowcon wasn't enough for me because I, I have to... <laughs> I, I can't possibly just spend 40 hours a week working. Uh, so I've been also uh, co-writing uh, a book on Lean Enterprise, which is about all the things that we talked about in Flowcon, more or less. Uh, and I, I cunningly hacked it so that I could watch all the presentations before I got the final manuscript in, because uh, it's, it's really inspiring. Uh, and I can steal some of these stories in quotes. you got to um, take that chapter out on you must have the silos. 
and silos. And the one on fire people who don't agree with you. That's, that right. has to come and out then, now. And so. then kill them. Yes. <laughs> and how to hide the body. <laughs> yeah, there was a whole chapter on that, which I've got to cut now. So. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, one of the things I'd like to do is Gene Kim has very kindly agreed to help me out and, and, and tie up with, with, with the work that I've been doing and you know, as well as just being a great inspiration in general. So anyone who buys a copy of Lean Enterprise on Amazon.com, it's available for pre-order right now, send me your receipt and Gene will very kindly provide you a free copy of the Kindle edition of the Phoenix Project. Oh, wow. um, so thanks very much, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, yeah. Both Adrian Cockcroft and I were actually comparing notes on your book, uh, Jez, and it is awesome. I mean, I've, I've told you this in private, and I'd love to tell everybody else. I mean, I think this is going to be a very important book. I mean, it is describing the, the techniques of how do you apply DevOps, things like Lean Startup, everything that was actually covered in FlowCon, and use it to change the enterprise, the horses. I mean, it's just a 99% problem, and that's why I think it's urgent and important, and, and it's sorely needed. So I can't wait to see the final copy. Yeah, yeah, and, and you said that comes out in January? Well, it's going to, let's say Q1, because okay. uh, you never know quite what's going to happen, and there's production schedules to, to worry about. But, but yes, and, and my email will be on the, on the podcast site, but you can email me at jez at thoughtworks.com, and we'll send you a copy of the Phoenix awesome. Project. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a link to it in the show notes, and then we'll also uh, put the details in the show notes about how to you know, get the receipt to you. Well, uh, Gene and Jez, it was a great conversation. It was a great conference. Uh, I really appreciate, you know, we were laughing. It's, it's, uh, we were taped this at like 6 in the morning Pacific time, which is, anyone who knows me, is super early. I appreciate you, uh, and especially uh, Jez, you're over in Sweden right now, uh, being able to, to join us here on the ship show to discuss the book on. Thanks very much for having us. Uh, thank you. This, this is great fun. And we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to be doing a tooltip segment. We've got a Unix tool that uh, is kind of spiffy and, and I hadn't heard of before. It's actually called Pipe Viewer, and it's a command line tool that uh, you can use. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And it has RPMs and source code, of course, and, and so you can grab it for your distro of choice. It looks like the package on CentOS, RHEL, Fedora, Debian, and Ubuntu is PD. But basically, it's a Oh, little... this is neat. Excuse yeah. me. I'm in Brewing installing PV right now. Yeah. So basically, what you can do is you can put it in between pipe commands on the command line, and it will give you a little estimated time of completion and give you, like, uh, the throughput, which is super useful. I, I can remember running like rsyncs over SSH and it was rsyncing like maybe half a terabyte of data or something and, and I started this at like 3pm thinking oh you know it won't take too long and then like 10pm I was stupid or oh, the other stupid mistake I made was it was not in a screen that was dumb oh. Yeah, uh, so it had I had this tool, it would have been super useful. The other fun thing about it is that you can actually run it multiple times. So they give an example right on the homepage where, so if you've got a source of data like Netcat or something that is unpredictable, it'll tell you how quickly the source data is coming in. And then if you've got, like maybe you're compressing it and then shoving it back across the network to some other place with SSH or something, um, it'll actually tell you how quickly the data is coming in, how quickly BZCAT or GZIP is, 
is actually compressing the data because it's limited by computational speed. And then if you've got, like, again, a different network output, it'll tell you what the bandwidth is there. So it's actually super useful if you shuttle a lot of data around or are trying to debug something, uh, some bottleneck in either some local process that you use a lot of pipes or some network process. I would have loved to have had this like 10 years ago, back when I was doing a lot of uh, encryption and decryption of large yes. um, flat files. That would have, this would have been awesome. <laughs> Which, you know, it's funny. So I'm trying to, let's see, show full history. How long has it been around? The first version shipped in 2002. Oh! <laughs> oh fail. So, <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's one thing I will say is, and that's why we do these tooltips. I mean, I was using Linux back in the 1-2 days, back in, in the mid-90s uh, in high school, and there are still tools like this that are just amazing, and you don't know about them because there's, there's so many just awesome tools. So, yeah, I, I certainly hear you there. And, and as a little uh, tidbit, Sam Kotler, I think, actually pointed out, he retweeted somebody that pointed out that uh, the less, the less command, mm-hmm. right, less is more, the same person has been maintaining it, and it is 30 years old. Wow, so, kudos. Yeah. Kudos to that. Yeah. Developer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so the point being that, yeah, there's a lot of tools that have been around for a long time, and that's why we do tooltips, because there are so many, and there's a lot of cool ones. So I did want to mention we have had the events calendar on the website, and we have had a few announcements about the events calendar, but it turns out that uh, keeping an events calendar up to date actually is pretty difficult. It's a lot of work. So we've actually started folding in event announcements just into the show, and uh, we mentioned this last episode, but the Config Management Camp EU is coming up next year in February in uh, Belgium, and it's co not co-located because they're in slightly different towns, but the, it they're like a day apart from FOSDEM, and there's a configuration management room that Puppet Labs and OpsCode and a bunch of other config management groups are setting up to talk config management at FOSDEM. So we'll put a link to those two things in the show notes. The reason we wanted to mention it is that they're currently doing calls for papers. So if you oh, have yeah. something, yeah, if you I'm have something, I'm going to submit you, for that. Both yeah. of them, probably. Awesome. So if you have, yes, if you have something you'd like to say, get those those submissions in as uh, soon as possible. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye. <laughs>